Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is journalist Larry Jaffe, who tells us all about Record Store Day. First of all, there's been a big study by USC Annenberg that was funded by Spotify, and it was all about the role of women and minorities in popular music creation. So the first thing that happened was they took a thousand popular songs from the years 2012 through 2021. And then they broke it down to see just who was participating in the creation of these songs. What they found was, as far as artists are concerned, there were three times more men artists than women. When it came to producers, only 3% were women. That's 35 to one by men. When it comes to songwriters, there was only 12.7%. So even though women seem to be making a lot of headroads, maybe not so much. When it comes to artists of color, over that 2012 to 2021 period, 48% were artists of color. Last year, it was a lot higher. It was 57%. Less than 2% of the 1,000 songs have only women writers, and 31% have one women writer. But by far and away, 57% don't even have a woman as a songwriter. The Grammys is pretty dismal as well. 13.6% of nominees were women. So what I find here is that it seems that women have made a lot of inroads. And sometimes it also seems like they're dominating the charts, which does happen from time to time. But even though they've made all of these advances, there's still a long way to go. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, here's something that's kind of far out there. How about digital drugs that are delivered by sound? Yeah, it's a new way to alter minds and reduce pain, enhance memory, ease anxiety, and depression even. It's from something called binaural beats. And what that does is it feeds conflicting frequencies into each ear, and that prompts neurons to synchronize brain patterns. So the way this works is you'd put 400 cycles in one ear and 440 or less in the other ear. The difference between 400 and 440, let's say, which is 40 cycles, is the same brain waves as we get during meditation. So we find if there's a difference between one to four hertz that simulates deep sleep and relaxation. From four to eight hertz, it's deep REM sleep and reduced anxiety. From eight to 13 hertz, relaxation and positivity. 14 to 30, it's increased concentration. And 40 hertz gives us enhanced training and learning. Now, what they suggest is you do this for 30 minutes per day. And it's being studied in multiple countries, the US, UK, Mexico, Brazil, Poland. Now, there's a big study done on this as well. It was in Drug and Alcohol Review. It doesn't work for everyone, though. I tried it, didn't work for me. And basically, I used Pro Tools and I put 400 hertz in one ear, and I put everything from 401 to 440 in the other ear. 
didn't really do much for me, but that said, I didn't go for 30 minutes either. All I can say is, if you suffer from any of the afflictions that I mentioned, then it's worth it to check it out. My guest this week is Larry Jaffe, who's going to take us behind the scenes of the biggest final selling day of the year, Record Store Day. Larry has been editor-in-chief of several magazines and websites covering the media and marketing business, including Medialine, which specialized in physical musical product. His writing has been published in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Billboard, Adweek, and numerous other publications. He also teaches media studies at St. Joseph's College and New York Institute of Technology, and he's been the program director for Making Vinyl and Replitech conferences, among others. Larry's latest book is Record Store Day, the most improbable comeback of the 21st century, and it's the inside story on how independent record store owners and musicians managed to revive the vinyl format from oblivion. It's being published by Rare Bird Books to coincide with Record Store Day's 15th anniversary. During the interview, we talked about how Record Store Day started, how the resurgence of vinyl caught the music industry by complete surprise, how custom releases pushed sales, and much more. I spoke with Larry via Zoom from his home in New York City. We haven't talked to each other for quite a while or really gotten into a serious conversation for a really long time. Before we get into the present day stuff, let's talk about your background and how you get into the business and leading up to what you're doing now. Sure. I mean, I started writing about music when I was in high school um, for the high school newspaper. And then when I went to college and I was writing professionally, even by the time I was a junior, I was getting uh, published in magazines. I, I never worked directly 100% in the music business. I always was sort of on the outskirts of it. Um, I remember when I was in high school, I was being so jealous of uh, Cameron Crowe, you know, touring with Led Zeppelin, reading Rolling Stone. I'm like, he's only two years older than me. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, you know, I, I, I pursued a journalism career, writing about music on the side, always, you know, freelancing for various publications. Had some... Success. I mean, I, I didn't write about music for Rolling Stone, but I did break in. Uh, I interviewed Ed Asner, the actor, mm -hmm. for them. And then I, I, I suppose my first real job, and it's how I met you, was when I was uh, the editor-in-chief of a magazine called Replication News, which became into Media Line. And uh, my boss was Marty Porter, who introduced me to you. Yeah. Um, and I had that gig for about eight years and it was the, basically the back end of the of the music you know of the physical media not only cds at the time which were still you know a cash cow also uh dvds were just first happening but also i mean getting back to my background when i was in college i worked for a band that was signed to electra records and we were actually probably going to get that record out this year electra records shelved it permanently in 1979 and uh, ORG Music is is uh, negotiating for the rights, and hopefully by the end of the year we'll have it out. <laughs> it took a long time, but better late than never. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I and I, you know, when I worked for this band before they got signed to Lecture, I was their uh, promo um, person, you know, going to the radio stations. And in fact, Jim Kerr, when he was on WPIX FM, played it. Called me when I was uh, in my dorm room. 
he later he's now still on Q one hundred four point three here in uh, New York City. Jim and I occasionally, you know, say hello every fifteen years or so. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, it was you know, I, I had a like a an awakening to the business. I knew I wanted to be part of it, but at the same time, I you know, my father always you know pushed me to do the um, the non risky thing. <laughs> yeah, so, funny how that works, huh? Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so when I was at Media Line, uh, we would occasionally run vinyl sections. You know, so vinyl was important to me as a kid growing up, but I think I was sort of brainwashed by CDs because that was my job. You know, then when I lost that job, I had a total different mindset that maybe it was time to do something different than music. Yeah, then then try to be in the music business in some capacity or even entertainment or media. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do at that stage. I was in a relationship with a woman who talked me into getting rid of my collection. Not only I I sold 3000 CDs, 3000 DVDs. I kept like 150 uh, vinyl records. I I, I, um, but I sold like 4000 LPs. Um, and I remember telling a friend of mine in 2012, we were in Las Vegas at a conference, what I had just done. And he goes, what are you nuts? <laughs> and I, I realized he was right. You know, like well, by the next year, I realized what a colossal mistake I made. <laughs> and I've spent the last eight years rebuilding that collection. <laughs> and I've done a pretty damn good job at it, actually. Wow. Yeah. Well, that brings us to Record Store Day and your new book. And I want to talk about that first, but let's just get into Record Store Day because I know you have all the facts on this. How did it come into being? Well, in 2007, a bunch of uh, independent record store owners were really contemplating their futures because all the big box music-specific stores Tower Records, the big one, but uh, HMV and Virgin also were in the U.S. to some extent, and they just pulled out. They weren't making enough profit, I guess, and they they just you know realized that um, U.S. well, not only just the U.S. but it was happening globally that there wasn't as demand for physical media like there was. You know, iTunes changed the game to some extent with digital downloads, which you know, in retrospect, downloads is a non-starter these days. But I realized that when the opportunity for the book came about, there was a story here to tell about how the CD conditioned consumers to pay twice as much as what they had already paid, basically the same album, but different format. And I mean, CDs really, I, I don't disparage the labels in the music industry at all going with the, with the CD because they really needed something exciting in the late 70s, early 80s um, to capture consumers' um, fancy, you know, because on the entertainment side of things, video games, really, that was the thing for kids. You know, they didn't really care about music that much anymore. And then on the video side, VHS really took off. And then, you know, about 15 years later, DVD did. So, you know, they had to reinvent themselves. And I, I think the CD did a good job at that. And in my magazine, Media Line, we covered how the high resolution world was there with two different products. And I think that was the problem with uh, DVD audio and super audio CD. They should have made some sort of piece and realized that 
why DVD video was a success was because there wasn't a format war going on. And they could have taken advantage of the surround sound theaters and, you know, living rooms. So it was a missed opportunity. On the other hand, Napster changed the game with, you know, free music, which you can't really condone that. But I think the RIAA specifically was asleep at the wheel, not coming up with some sort of legal alternative. So it took a long time before them to finally catch up. Um, and by then it was too late, you know. I mean, I remember we used to say, what's the, what was the best-selling CD of 1999? What well, was a blank CD? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but I mean, it, you know, in terms of the, the resurgence of vinyl, I don't think anybody, I mean, when I, so I went back and interviewed those individuals who were at this very pivotal meeting in Baltimore in September of uh, 2007, where they greenlit the concept of doing at that point, I don't think they had the name record store day, but they had the concept basically. And there was um, Eric Levin had a store in Atlanta that he sold comic books. And he said, you know, why don't we do something along the lines of comic book day, you know, but focus on vinyl. And Michael Kurtz was like, yeah, but most of the stores sell CDs. We don't, he says, yeah, but my use bin is getting a lot of attention. And this was going on in other places around the country. So they 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 took a risk. Now, it's interesting. The major labels actually did them a favor because what killed the, the LP initially was the labels stopped taking returns from the retailers on unsold vinyl. So they basically said, well, that's the deal. And the reason they did that was because they, they would take returns on CDs, you know, because they wanted to make sure that that format stuck. Yeah, yeah. So then on the vinyl side, the second time around, you know, retailers were like, well, we better make sure this stuff really sells. So they were very, they were taking risk, but they were conservative in, in their orders. And of course, we're talking small volumes. So the record store day concept right from the start was not thinking, well, we're going to sell a half a million records. It was more like limited editions, uh, create some excitement, but it wasn't really, this is also one of the things that came up during the course of the, um, the research. I thought the book was about the limited edition records. And I realized really, no, it was about the record store culture of our youth, you know, especially baby boomers really remembered. So I realized that that was something that was missing from my life. And it really never happened during the CD era. Mm. Like, I, now, true, I, you know, I had a family and I wasn't really thinking about hanging out in a record store those days. But, <laughs> but um, my kids are now adults and, you know, I, I have a lot more free time than I used to. <laughs> so. yeah. What's interesting here is I, and I think you're alluding to something that I didn't realize in that record store day may have kicked off the vinyl revitalization. Is that true? Well, absolutely. I mean, the numbers play it out. And in fact, the first chapter goes into the chronology of it and how uh, we had a, uh, an executive from Nielsen um, speak at Making Vinyl. That was the other major thing in my life. Uh, in 2017, I co-founded a, a B2B conference called Making Vinyl. 
with Brian Ekis, who I had uh, worked with um, off and on for about 20 years. I met him at a Replitech convention. And after I left MediaLine, um, you know, we worked together a lot more on conferences and newsletters. He was um, the president initially of um, something called the MediaTek Association and then later Colonial Purchasing Cooperative, um, which uh, bought uh, raw materials for the uh, media manufacturers. So when we did that conference, I mean, I realized that there was such demand for vinyl. But I mean, going back to like what you, your question about 2007, they, Record Store Day didn't really, and they admit this, they didn't have a clue what they were doing. They were making it up as they went along. They, so, but they found a, a few independent labels interested in jumping into it. Uh, beggars, for example, the Beggars Group um, had, you know, I think about a half dozen uh, releases that first year. And then a few other labels also participated. There were like less than a dozen releases, but all of them sold out. That they created the excitement around the country. I think there was about 120 stores initially that pledged to be involved in this. Well, every year it exponentially grew. The second year, I think it went up to like 98 uh, releases or something like that. But getting back to your question about the sales, the executive from Nielsen talked about how he was watching week to week how the numbers would jump. And he said to his boss, this is, I don't think this is a fluke. Mm. You know, I think there's something here, you know, and his boss was skeptical and said, yeah, well, when it turns into a real business, let me know, you know, but by the second year, hit, uh, the, uh, the executive realized it was a real business and it was not a fluke. It took some years though, and I remember being at a uh, new music seminar with Tom Silverman at a press conference. And this was about 2015. And he said, that's like eight years of um, growth. That's not, that's not a fad anymore. That's, that's real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Now Tom was also predicting streaming to, to take over the business, which it, you know, did by, you know, yeah. soon after. Yeah. What I find interesting in all this is the fact that no one predicted the growth the regrowth of vinyl, and yet it has caught on in such a big way. And I always wonder who is buying it. Now, when I go and do some research or just talk to people, I find out that it's not boomers so much. Boomers, yes, they're buying it, but it's, you know, Gen X, Gen Z, they're buying it because it's cool. I don't know if they're playing it, but they're buying it. It actually says a lot for the whole idea of, well, the cover makes a difference. And remember, you'd buy a, a, you know, a record just because of the cover was cool way back when. It seems to happen again now. Yeah, and my daughter is actually one of those Gen Zers that it's in her DNA to um, buy records. Uh, he, you know, she was in college and, and called me and she says, you're still into that record stuff, right? <laughs> So I said, yeah. So she goes, I think I want a record player. And I was like, well, what are you dating somebody who's into it? Or something? Like I, I mean, which was a totally sexist response on my part. And I have store owners talking about how their customer base were younger demographics. Exactly what you were saying. I think it, it took the baby boomers to kickstart the interest in vinyl and to get the stores convinced that there was a business there. 
as well as the labels. Now, on the independent side of things, like, you know, the epitaphs and the sub pops, those musicians wanted vinyl all along. They just thought, you know, especially like 45 singles and things are great to tour with. Um, so that base was there, I think, especially on like the niche genres, like, you know, punk. But, you know, there was, a, you know, there was also the audio follow scene that never really went away with, you know, vinyl. Like, you know, people representing, I mean, Michael Fremer, Man on Like Planet's a really good example. And he, he was predicting the comeback of vinyl uh, for, for uh, you know, I mean, since like the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, he pleaded with Universal not to sell their plant in upstate New York. <laughs> yeah, too bad. Well, the big thing about, or one of the big things about Record Store Day is the fact that there's all of these custom releases that are available. Was it like that right from the start? Yeah, I think it was to provide something that didn't exist uh, to create the excitement. And, uh, you know, and also back in 2007, social media was still in its infancy to some extent. So, I mean, the first the first year of Records Store Day was 2000, April in 2008. So this is the 15th anniversary. So, I mean, even then, I mean, I think I was just at that point on Facebook for the first time, you know, um, Twitter, I don't even think existed yet. You know, I mean, it, so, I mean, I think the trajectory also grew with social media, you know, as, as, um, Fans of particular artists found each other. They could talk about, hey, there's this Record Store Day release happening. Yeah, and Record Store Day got became very good at, you know, marketing and tapping that audience. And also the individual stores were doing more and more of that. You know, they also, um, some of them started selling via e-commerce, you know, so they were more digitally minded than others. Yeah, I mean, I guess the pandemic actually force them into that mindset well let's talk about that because the approach changed during the pandemic where instead of just one weekend it became three weekends right yeah they called it the drop um and and then the book actually it's like one of the longer chapters it it it, it gets into how optimistic the the they they were at ces in january and they were already, you know, planning the list. And, um, you know, everything was like coming up roses, you know. And then February, we started hearing the news about the pandemic. And then March, everything basically shut down. I guess by mid-February, they realized April was not a good idea. Um, that they couldn't safely, you know, do that without risking um, people's safety. Yeah. Lives and and uh, Carrie Carlton, one of the uh, co-founders of Making Vinyl, came up with the uh, idea of doing drops. And I guess drop is actually a, a, a record industry term, you know, in terms yeah. of yeah. releases. And, and so, it, so it made sense. And to break it up, I mean, even that was kind of risky. And I think there was an initial date that they thought would happen sooner, but they had a that I think they were originally planning June and they had to push that even later into the summer. Like August, I think was they moved it to, from June to August and then um, September and October. And then Black Friday was happening the next month. So you really had four consecutive months of special releases. 
And I mean, the great news about it is when you collectively, I'm talking about the first three months, the first three drops, that exceeded what they did the previous year in 2019. Mm. So now a good portion of that, I wouldn't say a good portion. I, I never saw the actual hard numbers of it. They don't really break it out. How much of that was in store sales versus e-commerce. Um, but even in store, you know, it has to be defined because they set up appointments for customers to come in, you know, like they would take the orders maybe over the phone, you know, they would have a curbside draw, you know, delivery. They, you know, and, and the great thing about that vinyl industry or this vinyl industry is that there's a lot more sharing of information of best practices and how, you know, we all win. Um, it's much different from like the cutthroat days of the CD business where everybody was like worrying about who was charging the least amount of money. And we had to match that keeping up with the Joneses type of thing. And it killed the business. Essentially, they commoditized it to the point that it, there was nothing left. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, they, but the interesting thing is now the CDs are back on an upswing as well. Uh, and mainly that's because the vinyl pressing plants can't keep up with demand. <laughs> yeah. They're all working as hard as they can. And there's more plants coming online all the time. Um, the, the new machinery uh, manufacturers are fulfilling orders, you know, getting new plants up and running. But some bands don't want to wait 10 months. They get their album on physical media. Okay. Know? Well, that leads me to another point. So the thing about Record Store Day is there's all these unique titles that appear. But I think the pushback that I've been hearing from various stores is that, well, we're having trouble getting them, and the only ones that we can get seem to be pop titles from the major labels instead of like the indie, the good indie stuff that we used to get. I, I think if you look closely at the list, it's pretty diverse in terms of it's not so much the major labels um, and the the pop stuff. Yeah, of course, there's the Ari Ariana Grande you know, titles and things like that. But, but it goes far beyond that. I mean, one of the things that the book deals with is, you know, is the list too big? You know, 500 individual releases is a lot, you know. And, you know, sometimes there's pressure on the, um, the retailers to, uh, you know, have as much as possible. Um, on the other hand, a lot of times they put in orders, but they only get a fraction of what they were looking for. Sure. So, you know, it's like a give and take, I guess. I, I mean, I, I think most consumers, if you're interested in participating in Record Store Day, on Record Store Day, you'll leave with a with pretty satisfied. I mean, yeah, there might be a few things that you weren't able to get. And I know personally, sometimes I'll go to three stores before I get everything that was, was, is on my own personal list, hmm. which usually starts out with about five titles. And then I end up with about eight <laughs> so, <laughs> and about $400 poorer, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of the things that may be hampering it now is the shortage of vinyl. And of course, when you have the majors involved and you have Adele, that's uh, the, figure I saw or figures I saw were, you know, they pressed 500,000 uh, of Adele's last record. So that took up so much capacity that it didn't leave much left for anybody else. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a story that the media loves to like spread, but on the other hand, 
it's not really an accurate. And I, I'm not taking credit for this analysis because Billy Fields from Warner Warner Music Group, who oversees all the vinyl activity pretty much, pointed out that the global capacity for vinyl today is around 170 million LPs. So you said 500,000. Um, I'm not sure if that was a two record set or one. Do you know? The Adele album? Uh, it must have been two. Okay. Sorry. So say million units is not, I mean, against the 170 million number is, is, is really pales. Now, where it could have impacted was Sony artists because all these labels have deals somewhat exclusive sometimes with pressing plants, multiple pressing plants, because they, they can't really find enough to, um, to, you know, do as the quantities or the number of individual titles that they, that, that they have planned. So, yeah, I think it's been exaggerated, the Adele effect on on this. And I don't think she should be blamed. I, if anything, I think we need more Adele's to keep the younger demographic interested in the format. Hmm. Now, I mean, w- one thing about that, I also, uh, when I'm not writing or, you know, crate digging, I teach college. And it's interesting that the same percentage pretty much of my students and this i've been measuring this for the past decade are interested in vinyl which is about 20 percent, 15 to 20 percent as my peers i mean some of my friends just would not be interested it's funny i was doing a, a a feature about the former um president of CBS radio is being inducted into the broadcasting and cable hall of fame. And I was interviewing one of his former colleagues, um, you know, about his career. And I told him about the book and, you know, both of these guys are radio people. Neither one were vinyl collectors, but one of them said, you know who's a huge vinyl collector? Gary Delabate, Howard Stern's uh, executive producer. So I contacted Gary, and sure enough, he was very interested in the book. Uh, so I'm, I sent him a copy yesterday. So but he's, so I said to him, by the way, is Howard into vinyl? And he said, no, not at all. Mm. So I, th- I think that's like a good, actually, example of how, you know, how we grew up with, with vinyl the same way you and I did. But he can't be bothered by it. He's fine with just like, you know, running music off of his phone, you know, and going to a Bluetooth speaker, I guess, you know. Okay. So you, 20% of your students are really interested in, in it. Why? That's a great question. Uh, So two of my students, both have been on the student newspaper and they actually surprised me. They wrote a poem about their love of vinyl, but I didn't even know this was coming out until the paper was printed. And I realized I might be I might be an influence on them. So I asked them, what about it? I, you know, the same question you just asked, what about it? So one of them, uh, Sabrina Hargrove, said he read a magazine article about Kendrick Lamar. And Kendrick said, if you really want to understand this record, you need to get the vinyl. So he, you know, 
Sabrim didn't even have a player yet or anything, you know. So he bought the record, couldn't believe how great the packaging was, realized that like a CD wouldn't do it justice, you know. Yeah. Um, and certainly if he, you know, streamed it, it really would. Yeah, you got the music, but what else do you have? You know, not really anything. And then also Gabby Panetta. Also, I forgot what specific artist piqued her interest. And then she just wanted the tangible experience of it. You know, I have a friend whose daughter um, is a Billie Eilish fan. And I never heard of Billie Eilish until Delphine, you know, mentioned it. And so this was before the, the uh, you know, her debut album came out. And um, she was at that stage still a YouTube phenomenon, pretty much. So when she graduated junior high school, I had gifted her uh, the, the Billie Eilish record and her mom already had a, um, a, you know, portable record player. And, and she was like, how does this thing work? I mean, <laughs> she was like animated. Like, and then when she heard it, she was just like floored about the experience, which is much like, again, it's much different than from what just running it off your phone. You know, it's funny. I saw this somewhere, and then I wrote a, a blog post about it, and it basically was when a 20-year-old hears vinyl for the first time. And what it was about was there was somebody that happened to go with some friends to a party, and they were playing vinyl. And she couldn't believe how great it sounded and became a you know a fan from then on and, and just you know pushed the, the format every time she could. So this particular blog post was picked up by numerous other bigger blogs than mine. And it's amazing the number of, of um, views that it got. But it wasn't because it was so brilliantly written. It was about the, you know, the, the reason for the whole thing, which is a 20-year-old hears vinyl and really loves it. So right. there, there you go. Yeah. I, you know, I mentioned, I talked about my daughter. So she and I, she's in Spain right now, but uh, she and I would go record store uh, shopping regularly. Her brother, who's a few years older, a millennial, he couldn't be bothered <laughs> at all. Yeah. So, so in my dedication to my daughter, I say, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. I mean, you're going to inherit an amazing record collection. I guarantee you. On the other hand, the Black Sabbath records go to your big brother, you know, even if he only puts them up on the wall. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Okay, Larry, let's talk about your book. So we've been talking around it for a while. You've been mentioning it, but tell me all about it. So, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. I So I was late to Record Store Day myself. So I had written about cybersecurity for 10 years, and that gig ended at the end of September of 2020. Uh, there was a management change. And I was burning out by the whole subject, you know, the hack of the day type of thing. I was just a little tired of it. Um, so it paid really well, though, better than anything else I've done in journalism for quite a while. Uh, so, but in any case, I was trying to figure out what am I going to do next? And I received a call from Michael Kurtz, uh, one of the co-founders and sort of the face of Record Store Day, what do you think about writing a book about record store day? And I said, I was born to write that book, <laughs> you know, I, um, and it came around just at the best possible time, you know, 
Now, I realized I had a lot of research because I wasn't there, you know, and I didn't even participate in Record Store Day as a consumer until 2014. Uh, Michael and I became friends in 2015. I had written um, an article. I had interviewed him in, I guess, 2016. And then I did another one in 2017, basically about how this resurgence has been underestimated. It's far greater than, you know, you've, you've been led to believe. Uh, so I think Michael was impressed with the writing that I was doing specifically about vinyl, as well as some, some of the other work that I had done in the past, which, you know, helped me get this opportunity. And so I, he, uh, as well as Carrie Colleton from Record Store Day, you know, basically identified initially about 25 people that they think I should be interviewing to tell the full story, you know, and as well as in-depth interviews with both Michael and Carrie as well. And then after I did the 25, which also the book was a bit delayed because I had a health scare, which uh, I could talk a little bit about later, but they, they identified another 20. So, and I'm like, you know, this book will never get done. We do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, not to mention the book was getting longer and longer. So at some point they agreed, okay, we'll cut it off at this stage, you know, because they, they, they saw I had covered most of the really big bases. So, but um, I was halfway through the book. I had done this really amazing uh, interview with um, a, a record store owner, uh, Waterloo, John Coons from uh, Waterloo Records in um, Austin. And I wake up one morning and my eye is completely shut and I have lesions all over my forehead. Mm. And I had to teach a class in like less than two hours. And I'm thinking, what do I do? I bet um, I know where, I where this is going, but go ahead. I, can't, I canceled the class, but I realized, I mean, although I looked hideous, I was, I was certainly running on the adrenaline. And I was like, I have to get this, this interview into the book. So I worked for three hours and I guess I felt well enough and I, I make a copy of the you know draft at that stage. I email it to Michael Kurtz. I say, look, I'm, I'm going to the ER. I can't talk. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. And, and, and really, my, my concern was, I didn't know if it was life-threatening what was going on, but it, it looked pretty serious. So when I entered the ER, the uh, check-in nurse said, it looks like you have shingles of the eye hmm. and face. And sure enough, I w so Michael calls me while I'm sitting to see the doctor. He goes, what's going on? So I, I told him. So, um, but for the month after, I was in bed. I mean, I couldn't stand without getting dizzy. I couldn't work on the book at all. I mean, it was really very frustrating. So I managed once by mid-March, I was ready to get back on to the book. And I just plowed through. Funny thing is, you know, you asked about the writing of it. I mean, it's like a blur, really. I mean, I know I worked very hard on it. And interesting enough, I was pretty diligent, w wrote every single day, mm. interviewed at least three or four people every week, you know, recorded everything via video, used the otter to transcribe, realized I tried to do it manually, actually, initially, with like an old-fashioned tape recorder. Oh, yeah. My first interview with Carrie was like that. And I started listening to it back and started writing it like the old-fashioned way. And I was like, 
this will never get done. <laughs> right. So I called one of my former students who was really very digitally minded. I said, what's the best software out there that could help me? And she, you know, recommend the otter. And sure enough, it was the, uh, the perfect, um, you know, solution to, um, I had submitted to Michael um, an outline of, you know, my vision where I thought the book should go. And, you know, some of the things that I wanted to do, he said he didn't think was practical. For example, uh, did you ever see the movie 24 Hour Party People about the Manchester scene? I mean, it's a great comedy. Steve Coogan is the um, star of it. And it's basically about how this television presenter um, is doing an article and then doing a segment about uh, the Sex Pistols and then their very first concert and how in the audience were all these other soon to be punk rock stars like they all started bands right after they watched this uh, performance and that was my vision for like retelling the record store day story you know that they were all at this meeting in baltimore in september 2007 and so michael said that's going to be really hard for you to <laughs> you know yeah. and he, he turned out to be right because when i interviewed as many as i could who was said to be at that meeting, at least two of them couldn't remember the specifics. And part of the reason for that was the night before they were all out drinking <laughs> and watching bands. And then for reasons I still don't understand, they didn't really talk about this concept about record store day until the next Saturday morning when everybody was like, half the place was already leaving. Huh. So like they're trying to round up support. Like, Hey, can you stick around and hear this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, it, you know, it's comical moments in that. And then Michael explained, you know, he had a vision to some extent how he was going to convince the industry that this was real. So he did two things. You asked about the label, major labels a bit. So he realized Warner Brothers never really left vinyl, that the cult, corporate culture there was always big. And right around the time Michael had approached um Grover Berry, uh, they were just reading uh, Neil Young's greatest hits on vinyl. Mm. I remember when that came out on, um, I think it was DVD audio. <laughs> you know, I remember being at a press conference that they were playing for it. But, you know, I, at some point they were um, they were doing a vinyl version. Of it. Yeah. But um, and then, um, you know, I mean, some of the other uh, well, Michael also came up with the idea of drafting Metallica um, to do like a record store appearance, which was at Rasputin in, in uh, the Bay Area, mm -hmm. uh, which was like the biggest store that they knew that could, you know, hold 600 people. Um, so the band stuck it out the entire day, you know, like six hours that they were there to, you know, sign everyone who was showed up. Wow. Get, get an yeah. autograph photo. Yeah. No, it, 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 really raised the uh, profile where can people get your book um well bookstores everywhere supposedly stocking it we'll see <laughs> was um uh the um publishers of rare bird books in los angeles uh ingram is the distributor so they're like the major book distributor um it's coming out april 12th amazon's been taking pre-orders since december um for it so, I mean, I heard that the pre-sales have been pretty, going pretty well. There is a um, deluxe version of the book, um, the hardcover, 
which has a, a companion record called Live at the Record Store. And everyone from Paul McCartney to Metallica to Billie Eilish to Imagine Dragons. I mean, it's a nice cross-section of music hitting all the uh, demographic bases. Brandy Carlisle's on it. Um, so the lucky 11, first 1,100 people who show up at the independent record store on April 23rd on record store day will have a chance to buy the book. I think there are only 1,400 copies of that hardcover available, but there's no additional cost of a charge for, for the uh, the record. If you oh. get that, you save $50 for the hardcover plus the, you get the record for free. Um, and then the paperback, which is like a globally distri- distributed edition, is $20. You can find out more about Larry and the Record Store Day book at LarryJaffe.com. That's Larry, L-A-R-R-Y, Jaffe, J-A-F-F-E-E.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOsinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, Go to bobbyosinski.com, select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, where you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 